Tonight on Battleground, the civilians caught in the crossfire of the war against inflation and why families hit by rising interest rates should prepare themselves for worse to come. I'll be joined from Washington by Adam Creighton to ask what Anthony Albanese should be learning from the mistakes of the Joe Biden administration. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and presenter of Battleground, streamed every Friday from the ADH TV studios in Sydney and available on demand subscription free on the ADH TV app and on your smartphone or smart TV. Also tonight, I'll bring you some exclusive new polling that exposes the epidemic of financial anxiety sweeping across Australia's mortgage belt. And I'll be joined by Momentous Research colleague James Matthias, who will be talking about the glut of renewable energy investment that's choking the electricity grid. And so the government's about to deliver a bread and butter budget, as the Treasurer wants to call it, which begs the question, what kind of bread and what kind of butter will be on his knife? Will it be a kind of budget tailored for families with $2.20 soft white sandwich loaf in their trolleys or for ones who think nothing of paying $8.50 for a loaf of fresh-baked sourdough. Does the Treasurer want to help the kind of families who spread $3.60 own brand butter on their bread, or do he prefer, prefer to help those who like biodynamic organic butter at two and a half times the price? The economic gulf between the haves and have-nots is getting wider, and the Treasurer must decide whose side is he on. Is he appealing to the Australians in comfortable inner metropolitan suburbs, or is he standing up for those in the mortgage belt? There's no prizes for guessing who cops the biggest thrashing from interest rate rises. After all, they don't call it the mortgage belt for nothing. Take the so-called homeowners in Oran Park in Sydney's Outer West, for example. I say so-called homeowners because only 13% of them actually own their homes outright. The vast majority of them, 87%, have to repay that loan every month out of the household budget. Over in Mossman, on the other hand, on Sydney's North Shore, it's a very different story. In Mossman, six out of 10 homeowners, 60%, really do own their own homes. And by comparison with Oran Park, incidentally, or just about anywhere else in Australia, their homes are worth a lot, worth a lot of money. In Mossman, only 40% have to cope with the mon monthly repayments to the bank. So when the Reserve Bank puts up mortgage rates to fight inflation, the pain is felt by battling families in Oran Park, but hardly makes a dent on the budgets of most families in Mossman. Raising interest rates is a blunt tool to control inflation. But it's the only one the authorities have seemed to be prepared to use. Governments could take some of the heat out of the economy, for sure, by reducing their own spending. But that would mean politicians would have to face political pain, which they're seldom willing to do. So the squeeze is applied to the family budget instead. You can think of the monetary response to inflation as a legalised form of torture. It amounts to the deliberate application of pain for as long as it takes to reduce spending. What's more, the pain on households is unequally distributed. The first Australians to get hurt will be those living in the 3.2 million households servicing a mortgage. The owners of the 1.5 million or so mortgaged investment properties are next. Many of them people on less than stellar incomes just trying to save for their retirement. Today, the average mortgage rate is around 4%. That's up from 2.8% in April. 
the bank's forecast would be paying as much as 6% by Christmas. That translates into a rise in mortgage repayments of 40% in nine months, which means that by the end of the year, the average borrower in New South Wales will be paying around $1,400 more each month than they were before the election. And when you add to that the pressure of rising electricity prices, food and fuel, something has to give. And that something will be discretionary spending, which is certain to drop sharply in the mortgage belt economy, even as it continues to bounce along in the wealthier mortgage liberated suburbs. It raises the prospect of a two-speed economy in which the laptop class hover calmly above it all while the sacrifice and misery goes to their fellow Australians, just as it did during the COVID-19 lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. Jim Chalmers, the Treasurer, must ignore the burning sensation of the $50 billion of unexpected revenue that's smoking in his pocket. He'd be well advised to use it all to pay down the, na the national debt, which, just like our mortgages, will cost even more to service by this time next year. It may be too much to hope that Labour will break the habits of a lifetime by making serious cuts to government spending. In the long run, however, sharing the pain is the kindest thing the government could do to ease the burden on the middle-income households in less fashionable streets that it feigns to represent. Anthony Albanese has been in the Prime Minister's seat for what, four months now. But if you were to judge from the coverage in the mainstream press, at least, he's hardly spending much time talking about the things that are weighing on the minds of most Australians. This week, we conducted some polling for the Menzies Research Centre in which we asked a cross-section of Australians, what do you think the government should be most focused on now? Compass polling asked a thousand people that question. Three of them. Three of them said the priority should be an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Two of those were Labour and one voted for the Greens, by the way. And how about the move from a monarchy to a republic that we spent so much time debating in the last two weeks? That should be top of the list of the government's priorities. Seven out of a thousand Australians, just 0.7% said it should be. There was a slightly better response to climate change. 10% of Australians want this top of the Prime Minister's to-do list. Nine out of these, nine out of 10 of these voted Labour, Green or Independent. Another 11% want the government's attention on healthcare and 2% nominated education. So what do most Australians want the government to focus on? You've guessed it. Three quarters of Australians say the cost of living should be front and centre of the government's attention. 6% say rising electricity prices are the main, should be the main government's main concern. 10% nominate improving housing affordability. And 60%, six out of 10 Australians, want the government to focus on reducing the cost of living on things like food and fuel. Which makes sense to people like you and me, of course. But is anybody paying attention in Canberra? Well, joining me in the studio now in Sydney is my Chief of Staff at the Menzies Research Centre, James Matthias. James runs our Justice and Integrity Programme, which focuses on reforms in the legal sector. Uh, James, welcome to Battleground. Nick, good to be here. Look, I've, I want to take a closer look at the government's 43% emissions reduction target and what happens now they've locked it into law. When Anthony Albanese announced Labor's powering Australia policy before the election, he described it as, quote, Labor's plan to create jobs, 
cut power bills and reduce emissions. Close quotes. The emissions reduction thing I get, but will it create jobs and reduce our power bills? Uh, absolutely not, Nick. Now, you have to remember also that at the time he said that this was the most comprehensive plan any Australian government has given on energy prices or energy policy. And of course, there were two parts of this, the 43% reduction and the commitment to lower people's power bills by $275. Now, what we saw in the parliament a few weeks ago when they passed this legislation, there was really no mention of that $275 target. In fact, they're now starting to walk away from it in what appears to be an omission that they aren't going to reduce people's power bills. And they were very specific about this, right? It was definitely $275. He repeated that, I think, at least eight times before the election. And he was going to do it over, over a very short time span, right? First term of government. That's right. And then when asked in the parliament over and over and over again, he or his climate change minister, Chris Bowen, could not commit to that $275 figure. So what's happened? What's changed between when they put the policy out and today? Well, clearly the policy, they hadn't thought about many factors in, that were going to uh, play out. And of course, now they're trying to crab walk away from the target. So we can chalk that up as Labor's first broken promise. Uh, just about, Nick, yep. Now, uh, Labor's 43% reductions commitment, uh, you and I at the Menzies Research Centre were involved in a project in 2019 when we looked at the then 45% emissions reduction target. We looked at the work of Dr Brian Fisher and he set out what this would mean in terms of uh, the cost of power and the effect on the economy and crucially the effect on jobs and wages. And it was a very grim picture, right? Now, 43% is not that much different, but anyway, it's locked into legislation now. So you'd have to think that in all likelihood, based on the work that Brian Fisher did, which I imagine the logic behind that hasn't changed, based on the work he did, power bills will inevitably increase, not decrease, as Albanese promised. That's right. And then what you saw in the Brian Fisher uh, report, as you say, Labor's 45% uh, target then, now it's 43%. Do you take 2% off the 330,000 jobs that he was predicting their policy would cost? <laughs> or the 11% reduction in people's real wages? Or the $500 billion hit to the economy? Potentially, that's a bit more scientific than, than what the Labor Party have done. But the real point about this legislation is that it doesn't actually mean all that much other than give certain select groups that can use this and weaponise it against the Australian economy. Because, of course, what the Labor Party did when they first came to government was update our Paris commitments to 43%. And that's really the target that matters, not the legislative target, which is all shot, uh, song and dance. Yeah, well, look, you've raised the concern with me that if we lock in this ambitious target into law, as we, we have done, it'll encourage more judicial activism. Cashed up environmental groups will be encouraged to weaponise the courts for their political purposes. And, uh, and judges may succumb to this and think that they too have a role in meeting this 43% target and say dis disallow a coal mine or something like that. Uh, is this a, how big a concern is this for you, James? This is a massive concern, Nick. Remember in 2011, Greenpeace put out a little document soliciting donations to do, and I quote, hold up the uh, coal projects or energy uh, power plants in the courts. And so uh, these cashed up organisations have had a major commitment for at least the last decade to uh, stop any um, projects that they don't like 
and use the Australian courts to their purpose. And so what they do is when they take these projects to court, they make it last as long as possible, erode investor in confidence, and then ultimately most of these projects don't get up. And of course, as well, you have to remember, it was only a few months ago that eight 16-year-old Victorians took the minister, the former minister for the environment, to court over an extension of a coal mine in rural New South Wales. And the judge at the time, when canvassing a two degree, three degree, four degree uh, uh, um, temperature increase, uh, said that hundreds, if not thousands, teenage Australians will die because of climate change induced bushfires. So that's the kind of environment that we're dealing with with the court system. Well, we like to think that the law is, is above politics, that it's, it's there to, you know, to, to bring fairness and, and justice to society. But you did some work on the federal court, didn't you, around uh, the industrial relations law, which was clear prima facie evidence of strong bias on behalf of some judges. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a really interesting report that we published not too long ago, Nick. And Essentially what we did was look over two years of employment related cases in the federal um, court, 291 cases, distilled it down into 109 cases um, of relevant law and just in a statistical analysis uh, looked which ways judges were siding with uh, employers or with unions. And what we found was some massive outliers where judges were say, siding with uh, employers 75% of the time or on the other end of the ledger and the, the highest number percentage one judge was siding with the unions 91% of the time. Um, it happens to be the same judge that canvassed that environmental decision um, <laughs> I was just talking about earlier. But when you have a statistical analysis of the way judges are deciding and you kind of scratch beneath the surface, that's where my concern lies when you actually give a legislative um, cover for judges who say want to take a more activist approach to environmental policies. Um, that's what this legislative target does. And the other issue with legislating targets like this is it basically steers you down the path into particular technologies, right? Which is why there's going to be such a heavy reliance on, on weather-dependent renewables, wind and solar, solar, and very little likelihood of desperately needed new gas or high-efficiency, low-emission coal-fired power stations. That's not how you reduce power bills, is it? By, by actually pushing one particular technology which may not be the most efficient or effective way of producing electricity. Correct. And what's more is we need these power stations. We need these projects. And, you know, if you look at a gas-fired power station, Nick, um, it produces 50% fewer emissions than a coal-fired power station. When combined with the renewables, it's 75% less. And yet, what we have is a situation now where we're not even investing in new um, gas-fired power stations. And what's more, if somebody even dares to put up a, a project to do it, it'll end up in the courts now because of this target. And then you get perverse situations where perhaps Infrastructure Australia will um, promote or prefer a rail, um, rail loop over fixing up major roads because it's less emissions intensive. Well, let's focus on Victoria. That's your home state and uh, the place where we're going to see a federal, uh, sorry, a state election coming up late, later in the year. Uh, what will legislative targets do to help future energy issues in Victoria, which of course are quite big, right? Well, it won't help at all. I mean, in Victoria, you've got a situation where essentially there's been a moratorium on exploration for gas for the last 10 years. It started in 2012 when that, that then government uh, got very scared about the lock the gate movement, you know, another 
um, environmental organisation that sometimes uses the courts for their own gain. And so essentially you've had no new conventional gas projects in Victoria for a decade and consider the fact that it takes about five years to get one of these things running. So in 2024, there's a situation that's coming where in winter 2024, Victoria's demand for gas will outstrip supply. Victoria is the state who has the highest number of gas connections, about 2.4 million. And the government's solution to that, Nick, is to say any new houses that are being built cannot have a gas connection. Rather than go out and look for more gas, which they're sitting on a lot of, they say no new gas connections in your house, which essentially means you'll have an electric heater or an electric stove which is run from a coal-fired power station. Doesn't make sense. It doesn't, James, and forgets, of course, that industry depends on gas and uh, what this means for job is, is horrifying. Look, James, thank you for joining us on Battleground tonight. Thanks, Nick. That was James Matias, Chief of Staff at the Menzies Research Centre. And if you'd like to keep up with James's contributions to the debate, why not sign up to the Menzies Research Centre's weekly newsletter, The Water Cooler. Just Google Menzies Research Centre or drop me a note at nickcater at adh.tv and I'll very happily add you to our list. Well, back in my days as editor of The Weekend Australian, I'd often turn to my colleague Adam Crichton to get my head around serious economic issues. Adam is an economist who knows what he's talking about first and foremost, but more importantly, he writes in the kind of language that allows others to know what he's talking about. And that, I'm sorry to say, is a surprisingly rare skill sometimes in journalism. Adam joins me today from Washington, where he's currently based. Adam, let's start with the United States economy and inflation. Milton Friedman said that the inflation always begins in Washington, that it is always and everywhere a monetary phenomena caused by governments that print too much money. Joe Biden, on the other hand, tells us that inflation begins in Moscow and that the 8% annual rise of the cost of living that you're facing is Putin's price hike. Who's right? Well, look, certainly the claim that it's Putin's fault is completely false. I mean, we've had we've had inflation in the US more than 5%, so uh, more than double the Federal Reserve's target uh, since, I think, April last year now. And, of course, as you know, Putin invaded uh, the Ukraine in February this year. So so we've had a serious inflation problem in the US for quite some time. It's It's been getting progressively worse. Uh, the level now is in the 8%. It's been there for a few months. That's a 40-year high. And as you probably know, last month when the most recent set of figures came out, there was a great deal of concern because uh, the Fed, the Biden administration, everyone was hoping that the peak may have been reached and, and that inflation was falling. But we saw in the monthly figures that actually core inflation, which is the thing that economists look at, that's if you strip out the energy, if you strip out the food and you look at the more stable prices, uh, the core inflation actually accelerated. It actually increased in into August, which was a great concern. And that's why you saw the uh, the sell-off in the markets and, and a great deal of concern among central banks around the world because they realise that, that it's going to be harder to, to smite this dragon uh, than they first thought. And cheap and reliable energy, Adam, you've written about this a lot. It's, it's essential to a strong economy. Uh, but it seems to me it's a bit too cute to blame Russia for Americans' energy woes when so many of its problems are self-induced. I mean, they've got this aversion to coal and gas. There's a nervousness about nuclear power and a strange, almost superstitious belief in wind and solar and electric cars. All this has had serious consequences, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Yeah, look, it certainly has. Um, I mean, thankfully, I think 
if you look at the US as a whole, it's not gone down the renewable path anywhere near as much yet as nations like Germany or some Scandinavian nations have, or the UK, in fact. And so power prices here are quite a deal lower still in those countries. I mean, there are states, of course, such as California, which if you look at in isolation, uh, that is a more akin to a Germany-style transition, if you like, and that has the most expensive power prices uh, within the United States. And so there's a strong correlation between the shift to renewable power, uh, solar and wind in particular, and the level of electricity prices. And of course, we're seeing that now in massive terms around the world, because when you do shift to solar and wind, you have to have a lot of gas. And as we know, the gas prices have gone through the roof. And so nations that have a lot of solar and wind, they also have a lot of gas. Uh, they have extremely expensive power prices. So I think you're seeing a hesitation around the world. I mean, maybe it's too soon to say the transition is over, but I'm starting to think that this, you know, the, a much vaunted transition to renewables, 100% renewables, is going to peter out pretty soon in the next one or two years when, when the voting publics of Europe and of America and of, and of Australia, of course, see uh, what those policies mean in practice. We might come back to that in a moment, Adam, but to inflation where we started. President Biden uh, last month put his signature on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is supposed to reduce inflation, they tell me, by reducing the deficit, which I suppose at least backs our point that they're admitting that too much government spending uh, is to blame for inflation, not what's going on in Russia. But anyway, put that to one side. If that's the case, why does the Inflation Reduction Act authorise the government to spend even more money, $391 billion on energy and climate change, billions more in healthcare subsidies? Is that going to work? <laughs> well, look, it's certainly not going to work, but I mean, it's part of this trend we see in Australia as well, where the names of laws are given you know, nice-sounding names, and, and uh, sadly, the gullible public too often uh, think that the names of the laws is actually what's going to happen. But but certainly that's not the case with the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. As you point out, it's a huge increase in spending across a number of dimensions. Uh, it is uh, largely paid for. The best that can be said for it is if you're a fiscal conservative, you think that spending should be paid for by taxation. And it does increase taxes more than spending. And this is why the Biden administration has been saying that it reduces inflation. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a very tangential of specious argument. They're saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to reduce uh, the deficit, reduce the budget deficit, so that's going to put some downward pressure on inflation. The reality is that the difference we're talking about in the context of the, of the US budget uh, deficit and debt is very small. It's not going to make any difference. It's just an expansion in the, in the federal government, uh, which, of course, to go to your first question, uh, why? Well, because it suits the ideological priors of the Democrat Party to, to expand the size of Washington. That's always been the case, the influence of Washington. Uh, you know, we see that in Australia, of course, too, with the Labor Party, where the federal government likes to expand its reach. Uh, we see that throughout the world. So there's going to be absolutely uh, no evidence that inflation uh, falls. I can be 100% uh, sure of that. I mean, if inflation falls, it won't be because of the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. It'll be because of other factors. Worse still, I mean, the Biden administration is being cheered on isn't it, by many in the media. I mean, if you read the New York Times or any of these newspapers, it always strangely seem to come up first when you Google any subject. They're right on board with they this. They certainly do. I know. 
I notice that myself when I try to find my articles. It's, it's sometimes very hard to find them as a, as a News Corp publication, but there's lots of Washington Post and and uh, New York Times articles. So you're quite right. Yes, look, the, the, you know, the vast bulk of the media in this country, the mainstream media, is is very pro-Democrat. That's actually one of the things that's really struck me about being here. It's quite it's quite blatant. I mean, you could also you know you could almost suggest some of these newspapers are propaganda arms almost of of those parties. I mean, perhaps that's too strong. Uh, because I, you know, I like to think that most journalists you know, think that they're doing a good job, that they're trying to be impartial. But I think subconsciously, a lot of it is is a propaganda, and that's that's very sad to see. And that's why uh, the Biden administration, governments in general, do get away with with a lot of these ridiculous arguments. Well, and it's overt, isn't it? We know now from uh, what Miranda Devine, you know, your your news corporation colleague, wrote on exactly. Hunter Biden's laptop and how ruthlessly and blatantly that story was suppressed by social media. Uh, we now know, don't we, that, that this isn't, it's not just our perception as people are perhaps on the more, I'd like to say more in the centre of politics, it, it is actually happening. Yeah, no, look, look, look that is true. And, and in recent months, they've basically admitted, I mean, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post separately in articles, I think on page 20 or 25 of their respective publications, uh, have admitted that the contents of the laptop were real, were true. And this is, of course, what Miranda said, you know, before 2020 election, before, you know, many, many months ago, more than a year ago. Uh, and it's it's kind of well known in media here that, I mean, it, conspiracies may be a strong word, but certainly there was a tacit agreement, I think, amongst media publications. And indeed, we've recently found out the FBI, uh, you know, nudged, uh, Facebook to to suppress the story as well because they thought it was you know Russian disinformation, uh, which of course turned out to be nonsense. Hmm. And if you if you actually look at the story and if you actually talk to the owner of, of the laptop store in Delaware, I mean it should have been very obvious that it was not Russian disinformation that that it was a genuine laptop it was a genuine story. It was an extraordinarily stupid thing to do of Hunter Biden just amazing to leave a laptop at this store. Uh, and the fact is he left it there over some 60 or 90 day period and, and then it became the property of, of the owner and the owner had to look through it and saw all this stuff. And then and then it turned out the owner was a Republican and he gave it to, well, actually, finally, he gave it to the FBI who didn't seem to do anything with it, which strikes me as unbelievable. Mm. And then he gave it to the Republican Party and, and the rest is history. Of course, it, it made its way to, to the New York Post and now it's conventional wisdom that it's real, but it took a long time to get out. And the reason it took so long to get out was firstly, I think, and this is just speculation, I don't think the FBI wanted anything to do with it uh, because of how political it was. And then the mainstream media didn't either. Mm. So, mm. you know, it's a sad state of affairs when when you've got the fourth estate, which, as you know, is meant to to uh, you know, to hold government to account of, you know, whether it's left or right. But the reality is it only likes to hold one side of politics to account in this country. And, and crucially, that, that's the case on, on the economy, as we've said. I mean, when I heard, call me naive if you like, but when I heard that America had just experienced its second quarter of negative growth, that's to me is a textbook recession. But, but no, apparently, it's only a technical recession. But regardless of that or not, uh, the fact is there have been two quarters of negative growth. Stock market is falling. No one's predicting a turnaround anytime soon. And I see that Steve Hankey at Johns, John Hopkins University puts the probability of a recession, an actual real recession, at 80%. And he's blaming the Fed for printing money over the last two years to deal with COVID-19. So 
My question is, is inflation and the recession the price we're going to have to pay for what you and I agree was, uh, to put it uh, mildly, an extremely extravagant approach to pandemic management? Yeah, look, I think that's 100% right. I mean, I think all this inflation is ultimately because of the response to COVID, not because of COVID. It's a very important distinction to make. I mean, my view has been that if we hadn't have had this hysterical overreaction, uh, most people wouldn't have would not have even known there was a pandemic, frankly. It was just everyone was whipped up into a lather of hysteria. And of course, governments responded with these crazy lockdowns. And when they had to lock economies down, they felt compelled to borrow trillions and trillions of dollars. And the only way they could conceivably do that, do all that borrowing, was if they insisted, I guess tacitly, that their central banks uh, create the money out of thin air. And that's exactly what happened. So you had huge increases in uh, central bank money in the United States, in Britain, in Europe, and of course, also Australia. And lo and behold, in all of these countries now, you you have very significant inflation and rising inflation. And uh, so, so yeah, it's, it, it's not like this has just happened out of the blue. It's been a deliberate choice of policymakers, and it's going to be very costly to get it down. As you suggested, the the traditional way to snuff out inflation is to lift interest rates to a higher level. And that has devastating implications, particularly on the housing sector when people are trying to buy a home, on the construction sector more generally where there's a lot of borrowing, it becomes very expensive. Uh, you know, as rates go up um, and debt becomes more expensive, there's there's foreclosures of businesses. And we're starting to see this now in the US as, as we see this, you know, fairly rapid increase in the rate um, and the level of interest. I mean, it's still relatively low. We're still in the twos and threes around the world. But if inflation stays at, you know, sevens and eights percent, sorry, seven and eight percent, as it is pretty much or more throughout Europe and the US, you're going to see further increases. And, that, and that's going to have a real effect on the real economy. And eventually, haven't seen it yet, but eventually the unemployment rate will start to rise. Dead right it will. And in my editorial at the shop, top of the show, Adam, I made the point that raising interest rates is a very blunt tool to control inflation. It hurts people with home loans and small businesses on tight margins extremely hard. Governments could take some of the heat out the economy themselves by reducing their own spending. But of course, that would mean politicians would have to face some political pain. Yeah which they're seldom willing to do, so the squeeze is applied to the family budget instead. That's right, isn't it? This is basically families with mortgages are being asked to take, bear all the pain because the government just doesn't have the discipline to reduce its spending. Yeah, look, that's, yeah, that's, that's certainly right. And it's especially true in countries like Australia, where the bulk of households have a variable interest rate mortgages. And so when the central bank changes interest rates, it flows on pretty much straight away to mortgage holders, whereas in the US, uh, fixed rates are much more common, so the effect is 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 uh, slower because uh, people tend to have uh, thirty year fixed rate mortgages in the US for various structural reasons. But certainly for young people who are trying to get a mortgage to get their first thirty year mortgage, they're going to be hit with those higher rates. And we're already in a situation in the US where now that 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 fixed thirty rate mortgage is about six percent, which is a lot. I mean, a year and a half ago it was three, so that is an extraordinary increase in the cost of borrowing, or if you like, uh, the price of a house has halved that, that, that someone can afford uh, mm. because, because that, you know, the rate has gone up so much. So, uh, yeah, it, it certainly falls on a younger people. I mean, people with wealth, as is always the case through history, they always manage to, 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 uh, to get around problems. And, and uh, so it's, it's, you know, young people, people who need credit that are going to suffer the most. 
Yeah, and here, 6% interest rates are forecast by Christmas. That means 40% increase on mortgage repayments uh, compared to what people were paying before the election in April, or $1,400 a month that the average uh, family's got to find in New South Wales out of its budget just to pay the mortgage. Now, 10% of people on mortgage uh, on a mortgage told Compass polling this week that they won't be able to reach to pay the monthly repayments at that rate. Another 73% say they'll have to cut back on spending. So that's well over 3 million households, by my calculation, that say they'll feel the pinch and cut back on spending. That's going to have a big effect on the rest of the economy, I would have thought. Yeah, look, it certainly will. I think Australia's a particularly worrying worrying sort of a worried case, a worrying case because we've had very low rates for a long time and a lot of people have borrowed, have taken out home loans to buy properties that they can really only afford at those very low mortgage rates of one and a half, two percent. Suddenly they're going to be four and five percent. They certainly can't afford them. So they're going to have to sell their property, maybe at a loss. And and the whole structural level of house prices in Australia, apartment prices, is going to fall by quite a bit. We're already seeing that in Sydney and Melbourne. I think the rates of acceleration, so the rates of decline, are pretty significant in some cases, especially Sydney and Melbourne. And this is just the beginning. There's always a lag, of course, between the increase in rates and the effect on prices. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, but it's certainly going to happen. I mean, it, it happens in the stock market first, right? Because that's the most liquid, if you like. And so you've seen the US market's down 20%, which is huge, right? That's a that's a massive decline in wealth. I'm not sure it's quite 20% in Australia, but, but it would roughly be around that. And house prices are next. And the problem is when house prices fall, because that's a class of asset that's held by a far greater chunk of society, the impact on confidence and on spending is much greater. And that's when you can get very serious recessions. I hope if we haven't depressed our viewers too much already, <laughs> energy prices, of course, as we've already mentioned, are biting. It used to seem, seem to me, Adam, that when we wanted to, well, in the old days when we wanted to make small talk, we wanted to avoid upsetting people by talking about politics or religion, we'd talk about the weather. But as you recently wrote in The Australian, <laughs> the relentless obsession with shoehorning every weather or event or natural disaster into a manufactured narrative that revolves around climate change has killed rational discussion, causing governments to make decisions about energy that make sense only if decarbonisation were a state religion. Here in Australia, We've just had legislated 43% uh, reduction by 2030, which is yes. a lot, and of course zero by 2050. Uh, this is just going to flow right on into prices, isn't it? It's impossible to imagine under oh, that scenario is. that the prices will yeah, go down yeah. as the government predicts. No, look, and I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I, of course, these sorts of targets make people very angry, as they should, but... I just don't think they're going to happen at all. So there's almost no need to worry about them because they're going to reach a point where the politics and the science simply don't don't meet. Like like they don't match up. Most politicians have no idea about science, no idea about the laws of physics. Uh, they they don't seem to understand that uh, you need an enormous amount of battery capacity to move to 100% renewable power grid. And of course, that's just the electricity grid. That's just that's just a third of the emissions. It doesn't uh, take into account the transport sector and the agricultural sector. So, so the idea that we can cut by forty three percent 
uh, by by whatever it is, 2030, I think, isn't it? Isn't it, isn't it a 2030 2030. or 2050? Anyway, whatever. Mm. I mean, it doesn't matter. This is not going to happen. And I think we've already seen the end in Europe, right? I mean, that's that's over. They're turning coal plants back on. There's now more fossil fuels being burned. Uh, so so these these targets are not going to be met. And I think the uh, realization that they're not going to be met is actually going to be a good thing. And then there's going to have to be, well, a lot of awkward moments, I think for major political parties uh, as they as they try to extricate themselves from these crazy policies but but it's going to happen uh, the the, uh, the energy crisis is you know the sad thing about it is it's fully self-inflicted by by society itself it's not you know it's not like an asteroid is hitting us from outer space it's it's a self-inflicted man-made problem and I think you know I'm, I'm kind of confident that, that we'll get out of it. No, I hope so. Eventually. Forgive me for grasping at straws, Adam, but we've got to grasp at anything we've got right now. And in Europe, as you point out, there's a real energy crisis. You know, uh, households in Germany are being told to gather firewood in preparation for the winter. Extraordinary stuff. Surely this has got to lead to a return to sanity. Do, is there any sign the debate is changing in the well, United States, for instance? Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, look, I mean, I think... Uh, you know, I think you're already seeing it. I think most Americans are aware that power prices in California are much more expensive, as they are, than any other state in the union. And that's because of, of the large levels of renewable energy there. Uh, there's no question. And so I think the awareness of that is growing. Inflation's made people poorer uh, because prices are rising faster than wages. So there's going to be more awareness of the cost of things than there was maybe a few years ago. So maybe if there's any positive dividend from inflation, it's that people are going to be more aware of the cost of things and less willing to tolerate uh, self-inflicted increases in power prices. Uh, I think the German, look, I mean, the German example is just starting to play out. We haven't gone through winter yet, the northern winter. And it could be horrific. I mean, people could die. Thousands of people could die, Mm. uh, especially older, poor people. Uh, throughout Europe, not just Germany, because of these crazy policies. And I think when when people see that, when they see the real human damage that has been done by this kind of religious insanity, if you like, uh, I think there'll be a stepping back mm. of 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 a you know realization that there's no that this, this this obsession with net zero is not a wise move. I know you've got to go. A couple of things I just want to squeeze in if I can, because it's so rare to get the chance to talk to you these days. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Industrial relations in Australia. Tony Burke, the industrial relations minister, thinks he has the solution for inflation, and that's to let the unions loose so they can argue and bully their way to higher wages. Uh, now, is is that a sensible policy, or is it stark, staring, mad-eyed bonkers? No, look, I mean, I, th- I think we've seen, I mean, Australia's a history of the last 30, 40 years shows that, you know, it's very dangerous when you when you entrench the power of unions in the industrial relations system. It leads to a wage price spiral sometimes where the wages go up, prices go up and, and back and forth. Uh, you know, I think I think we know from basic economics that, that you want to 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 uh, you know to decentralize the labor market as much as possible so so that each individual business can uh, decide what it what it pays its workers that's you know that's the most flexible way of doing things the most rational way of doing things i mean i don't think it will even happen in australia because it was so damaging in the past so i you know so i'm not worried about about a return of the 70s and 80s to australia finally to politics in america two questions first the midterm elections are fast approaching. So what are your predictions, mm-hmm. first of all, about the state of play in the House and the Senate by the end of the year? And what will it mean for Joe Biden? 
Well, look, if I had to predict, and I don't like predicting, but it's very hard, um, um, I, you know, I think the Republicans will take both chambers off the Democrats by small margins. Uh, the vote's still five, six weeks away, so, of course, anything can happen. It must be said that in the past month or so, Republicans have not been doing well. Uh, the president's approval rating has been increasing. Um, and if you look at the betting markets, the probability that the Republicans will retake the Senate is now less than 50%, whereas six months ago it was far more than 50%. So there's definitely been a shift in the mood, in the momentum to the Democrats. Now, there's all sorts of theories as to why. I mean, I tend to think it's, it's the relentless focus on Donald Trump in the US and all his legal woes and his relentless focus on the result of the last election in 2020, which I think undermines support for Republicans amongst independent voters. I mean, certainly uh, Trump's diehard supporters still love him. They still want him to run. But the reality is that's a quarter of the country or maybe a third of the country that are, that are those rusted on supporters. And, are, you know, to win elections, you need more than half the country. So I think there's a possibility that, you know, that Republicans will underperform in November. And if that happens, it will be very embarrassing because as we've discussed throughout the show, uh, the external circumstances are perfect for an opposition party to retake power. You've got very high inflation. We haven't talked about immigration. The southern border is, mm. is extremely open. Millions of people are crossing, and a lot of people are angry about that justifiably. So there are many external factors to talk about, but the focus on Donald Trump, I think, uh, does kind of distract from those macroeconomic issues. Well, that is the big question, isn't it, for the Republicans, whether Donald Trump is planning to run again. You wrote recently that the legal and political baggage is too great, even for Trump's rusted-on supporters. So are you ruling him out completely? No, no. Look, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I mean I, my personal preference uh, would be that he doesn't run again. I think he served a useful historical purpose. I mean, I certainly admire him. He, uh, uh, for many reasons, uh, but I think, you know, he shouldn't run again. I think he should li leave it to someone younger to carry on his ideals, but without all of the baggage. But we all know that Donald Trump's ego might, he might get in the way of that scenario and he may want to run again. And most people think that he will announce a run for the presidency after the midterm elections. But, but if Republicans do badly, right, as I just flagged as possibility, I think he may not because he doesn't want to lose, right? And if he does badly, if if his candidates, and they are largely his candidates, if his candidates do badly on the 8th of November, then he may think twice about a 2024 bid. So we just have to wait and see. So maybe in the long term for the old-fashioned Republicans, uh, the Bush Republicans, maybe they need to go badly in November to get rid of him. Uh, maybe there needs to be a short-term uh, cost for long-term gain from their point of view. We have to wait and see. And just quickly, that younger candidate would be Ron DeSantis, right? The man who, yeah, better, than, better than any other politi politician on the centre-right that I know of anywhere in the world, has completely managed to out-box woke. I would yeah. agree. No, he's, he's just been extraordinary, I think. He's very impressive. He's still relatively young, 43 or 44, I think. Uh, he's handled the pandemic in this country brilliantly. Uh, the state the state of Florida barely locked down at all. There were There were barely any mandates. And it's turned out that the, you know, the deaths and the case rates in that state are pretty much the same as everywhere else in the US uh, without all the economic and, and social damage. And so I think he, you know, he looks very wise now. Uh, he's also very good on the, on the woke stuff, as you say, on the, on the social issues. Uh, so yeah, look, it remains to be seen. But if, if, you know, if Trump says he's gonna run, I don't think Ron will because 
because Trump is still very, you know, very liked amongst the Republican base. And so if Trump does want that nomination, I think he'd, I think he'd probably get it. But, but the question is whether he wins the actual election. I think that's, that's not so likely. Adam, great to chat to you again. Your first appearance, I think, on ADH TV, but I, I it guarantee is. it won't be your last. Uh, it's always good to hear from okay. you. Thank and you. and uh, all the best. We'll enjoy your writing in The Australian. We'll catch up again with you soon. To your emails now and my recent comments about the government's poor handling of inflation seem to have rung a chord. Jeff writes, Jim Chalmers presents himself as a beacon of hope for the nation. He had a plan to fix up all the ills brought upon us by the last government. Now in power, Jim Chalmers presents himself as a harbinger of doom. Things are bad and worse is coming, but there's nothing we can do. He can afford to continue, he can't afford to continue the fuel excise discount because the money is needed to subsidise childcare for families earning up to half a million dollars a year. Do you see a problem with that? Yes, well, I think we all do, don't we? Uh, Chris writes, personal income tax already makes up a disproportionate share of government revenues. It's time to consider an increase in consumption tax, i.e. increase the GST to 15%. This will help reduce the deficit, restrict, restrict consumer spending on non-essentials and fight inflation. Well, Chris, every economist worth his or her salt would agree wholeheartedly with that. I think providing you reduced income tax to compensate. The problem is that you need to get six state premiers and a federal prime minister to agree. And that means it's a political non-starter in my book. On mortgage stress, Helen writes, nailed it, Nick. It's sickening to see the stress of mortgage descend on the working class struggling to make ends meet with the goalposts always shifting, poor people. Jim Chalmers has no idea how to run the economy. The crash will be ugly. Well, Jill agrees. Thank you, Nick, you said it all. Single parents, notably women, who've done their best to take out a mortgage to buy out their dropkick ex-husbands will be the losers here. The reaction to my comments on the monarchy have been mixed. Support for the Crown has risen since the death of Queen Elizabeth II the very opposite of what many Republicans were predicting, but some of you, it seems, are not deterred. Jack writes, We're confronted with the real need for Australia to get rid of its training wheels, Mr Cater. Our roots are no longer planted in the old dart. Forget the palms, Mr Cater. Let us make a fresh start together as one, with one of us as head of the nation. Well, it used to be a sign of respect to be addressed as Mr Cater, but I think today it's the very opposite. Alexander writes, the juvenile and completely historically ignorant bile that's being spewed out of a predominantly social media circles following the death of the Queen has utterly backfired. The Republican movement will be well served to lie low for some time and disassociate themselves with the products of depressing education systems worldwide that have lost their ability to teach students history in a balanced and rigorous manner. Well said. John writes from Victoria, the transition to a new head of state was seamless, entirely peaceful and free from any political machinations. Do we really want to swap that for another level of potentially dirty and corruptible political sh shenanigans and the attached loyalties and allegiances of the victors, just as we see in the US and other places? I think that's the point at the end of the day, isn't it? Well, keep the emails coming. Email me at nickcater at adh.com. Dot TV. Nick Cater, one word, at ADH.
www.battlegroundradio.tv. Great to be presenting Battleground once again. And thank you to my guests for joining me. Thank you to Adam Creighton. Thanks to Jim Mathias, James Matthias. And thanks to all the production team here at ADH. We'll see you again next week.